Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Brad Kearns here, host of the Primal Endurance Online Mastery Course. It's finally launched. We're so excited to share it with you. Let's hear what Lindsay Taylor has to say about it. Be on the lookout for upcoming announcements about the Primal Endurance Mastery Course that we will be releasing very soon. I just had a chance to preview it, and it is going to be so rad, you guys. And I'm not just saying that because I am one of the featured experts. I am really excited about it. Brad did an amazing job with this. It's going to be such a great resource for people who want to dive really deep into the concepts covered in the Primal Endurance book and in the podcast. It's really amazing, you guys. I'm super stoked about it. Can't you see? I'm calling. A guy like you should wear a warning. It's dangerous. I'm falling. There's no escape. I can't wait. I need a hand. Baby, give me it. You're dangerous. I'm loving it. Too high. Can't come down. Hey, Primal Endurance Podcast, Q&A show. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Let's get right into it. Love these questions. Very thoughtful and uh, progressing from the many shows that we've had and getting even more deeper into this stuff to make sure that we get everything straight, figure everything out once and for all. And here comes the first one coming at you. What do you think about doing a math test for a set time? Utilize the same route, same time of day and conditions. I run an out and back course on the seawall, the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I've been doing my first 20 minutes, seeing if my distance covered is longer. Does it make sense? So we've always talked about the math test as a fixed course, a fixed route, uh, where you're running eight laps around the track at the fixed heart rate. But of course, you can do the other way, which is to see how far you can go when the beeper alarm sounds at 20 minutes. Cool, fun stuff. You see the difference? All you're trying to do is get two fixed variables, and then the performance measurement is the one that um, that's going to change according to your fitness level. So if you're going for 20 minutes along the seawall at the Mississippi Gulf Coast, we'll see if you can make it to the lighthouse instead of the Uh, the bathroom, you know, next time. Cool, fun stuff. Uh, Here's another one. My question must be, uh, what's the best way as an older athlete who still wants to compete and needs to maintain that muscle mass, muscle density, but also looking to the future and maintaining the health of my heart, especially? Um, So the question was about strength training. Um, You know, can I I mix that in with my endurance goals? And I'm kind of digging further into this question and seeing that uh, many questions along the same refrain where it's like, how do I balance um, the disparate goals of, let's say, the highly focused, dedicated endurance athlete who's supposed to be building a base and staying under aerobic heart rate and uh, not mixing in 
too many stressful workouts. And then on the other side of the message, like the primal blueprint baseline template philosophy is to mix in frequent movement with brief high intensity strength training sessions and occasional all out sprints. How do you mix all these in? And it depends, I guess, on the, um, how serious you are about your endurance goals. So a lot of the writing in primal endurance is, is directed to someone who, you know, wants to pursue these, uh, all encompassing, very challenging performance goals, and this is the best way to do it. This is what's modeled by the top elite athletes where you have to make some sacrifices, and you're kind of sacrificing this pursuit of total fitness, right? Broad-based competency, like the CrossFit people talk about blending the varied skills of a gymnast, a power lifter, uh, and, and putting that together. And um, you can you know do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and do a lot of things very well. Whereas the endurance athlete is, uh, you know, typically been seen as the narrowly adapted skin and bones endurance machine who can go all day, but might not be that impressive on the pull-up bar or on the sprint course. So um, what we're trying to convey in the book is that these other forms of training are important, but they have to be conducted within the framework of a strong aerobic base and that the aerobic exercise and the improvement of your maximum aerobic function is going to give you the best bang for the buck. So I hope we can sort the, sort all that out and realize that this is not um, an exact science. And so mainly your decision making and your uh, contribution of various forms of training to your overall training picture should be based on personal preference and what you enjoy and what turns you on. And it might change from one year to the next. So this might be a big endurance year for you, and you're training for uh, an ultra-distance event. You got in, you got your number, and that's going to be your main focus in your training. Your key workouts are going to approximate the challenge of what you're aspiring to do on the race course. And then, who knows, the next year, maybe you'll be inclined to look for uh, a disparate goals, such as the adventure racing, obstacle coursing, or doing um, short-distance, single-sport things like going for 5K, 10K running races instead of triathlons, things like that. So um, variation is good, but not in a robotic manner, just whatever turns you on. That's the, that's the ultimate uh, decision-making parameter. Here's another question. I'm wondering about the difference between FTP training and Maffetone's maximum aerobic heart rate, maximum aerobic function model. Um, I use functional threshold power as the basis for their training. Um, how are they different? How are they similar? So functional threshold power is, Lindsay Taylor gave a nice written answer to the person. Um, it's talking about um, training according to your anaerobic threshold and getting all scientific about that. Um, you know, we're trying to make this simple for everybody, including the elite international caliber competitor, all the way down to the basic recreational enthusiast who's just getting into the endurance scene. So I want you to focus on, and I want my message and my direction to be focused on, um, the concept of maximum aerobic heart rate and developing your aerobic base and understanding that critical distinction between aerobic exercise where you're predominantly burning fat, you're working all the way up to your maximum aerobic heart rate, which is the point of maximum fat oxidation per minute, maximum fat throughput, energy production. And then when you exceed that, you're going into the um, slightly anaerobic heart rates all the way up to anaerobic threshold, which is sort of a uh, red line pace, a high intensity pace that's something you could maintain 
for an all-out competitive effort for around an hour. So there's a huge distinction between building that aerobic base at comfortable heart rates and then dabbling in this high-tech training where they're uh, designing workouts based on things like your anaerobic threshold. I would focus on that very, very little. I would concern yourself very little with these matters. And just like Maffetone says, um, when it's time to go hard, there's so many different ways that you can skin this cat. There's so many different ways that you can engage in high-intensity exercise, and it doesn't really matter that much which one you choose. So if you like intervals, or you like sprinting, or you like time trialing, or you like fartlek, or you like tempo runs, all these things uh, stimulate the anaerobic energy system. They t- teach you to uh, buffer lactate in the bloodstream and become uh, more adept at holding that red line pace, that threshold pace. And they come at a high energy cost and a high requirement for recovery after. They definitely have a place in your training program, but a little goes a long way. And their really maximum effectiveness comes when you are conducting these workouts on the, uh, on the foundation of a strong aerobic base. By far the biggest mistake and the trend is for people to uh, be deficient in aerobic function and excessive in their anaerobic training because they possibly don't know any better because it's not that strenuous and it's not that difficult to drift above maximum aerobic heart rate. You do it in a pattern, you become a chronic cardio king or queen, and you miss out on all the benefits, and you also put your health at risk, um, your long-term compliance with training, because you start to get tired and fatigued, and um, your hormonal imbalances come into play. And then three years later, you quit, and you're back into the bowling league or what have you. So we want to go for longevity, we want to go for health, and that's why we want to emphasize the aerobic heart rates. Even if they're not as fun and sexy as going really hard, this is where you're going to get the maximum results And if you don't believe me, look at the performances of the world's elite endurance athletes in every sport for the last 60 years. It's been that foundational aerobic training that is the key to success. Another question. See how fast I'm going today? Oh, my gosh. This could be a record. How far out from marathon race day would you recommend the addition of speed, tempo, interval training when math is your day-to-day? If speed and tempo runs are to be incorporated, what should the volume, distance, and duration of these higher-intensity runs B. How far out from the marathon should I start to include them? Oh my gosh, that's such a funny question coming on the heels of my uh, commentary from the question before. Um, Look, marathon, 26 miles. Are you going under two hours and 37 minutes? Uh, You didn't specify in your question here. (laughs) I'm going to guess the answer is no, because very, very few people um, are going that fast. That's the six-minute mile average pace. Six-minute miles for a marathon is a highly accomplished runner. Um, So if you're going slower than that, even if you're going seven-minute, eight-minute miles, we have to realize that this is not a fast pace by any stretch or of the definition of the word. And so what you're doing is a uh, predominantly an endurance effort, a predominantly an aerobic effort to run 26 miles. And so, therefore, the return on investment for intervals, threshold workouts, all the things mentioned in the question, the return on investment is going to be minimal. Yes, these workouts will get you in better shape and they will accelerate the progress of fitness in comparison to just 
jogging slowly. So once in a while, there may be a good call to open up the throttle a little bit and perhaps participate in a weekend 10-kilometer run or a 5-kilometer run or even a half-marathon run where you're competing at a pace that's significantly faster than your pace will be for double that distance. And those can have a fitness benefit. Of course, you need to allocate a lot of recovery time afterward. But if you can just lower your maximum aerobic heart rate through sustained aerobic training and use the over-distance runs as your main uh, catalyst to stimulate fitness improvement, this is where you're going to get your best benefits. So if you can just, for example, get yourself uh, able to run three and a half hours instead of 245 as your previous long run, that breakthrough in fitness performance, pushing your body and challenging your body in that manner at the aerobic heart rates, not exceeding the aerobic maximum, but just uh, stretching out your longest duration run is going to be vastly bigger payoff than throwing down intervals and high-intensity sessions when you're going for a marathon. Unless you're talking about dropping into Olympic trials qualifying time, which is like 218, 219, then you're running five-something per mile or you're running a six-minute mile. That's a different deal because that indicates such a high level of fitness that the return on investment will be better when you're throwing down some high-intensity stuff. Uh, The next question, I'm approaching the end of my race season. Uh, with my last race. I'm an obstacle course racer. In the book, you talk about taking an extended off-season break of four weeks with no training. This sounds great, but I'm wondering what I can do to enhance my rest and recovery during this time. I don't want to sit around for four weeks. I want to be proactive. Would doing yoga, going on easy hikes and walks, doing mobility work, and other forms of low-level aerobic activities be okay? I'm wondering at what point these activities might be considered training versus being considered rejuvenating. Excellent question. Fun stuff. So this low-level aerobic activity, such as doing easy hikes and walks, mobility work, all that kind of stuff, fantastic. That's about living a healthy lifestyle. It's not going to interfere with your recovery from a strenuous competitive season. In fact, it might in many ways uh, improve the rate of rest and restoration and rebuilding Uh, regaining your enthusiasm in contrast or in comparison with sitting on the couch for four weeks and eating junk food and uh, just letting yourself go to heck in the name of recovering from your stressful competitive season. As we wrote about in the book, we have to get away from this lazy athlete mentality where you think that you've earned a hall pass because of your impressive workout log where you're training 10, 15 hours a week and then you take the other 150 hours a week and you veg out. So the off-season is a good time to uh, let intuition be your guide in terms of, I mean, we're not talking about setting up a disciplined schedule right out of your competitive race season, and now you're into competitive yoga season where you're seeing if you can do more classes than your neighbor, that kind of thing. So we want to just go with the ebb and flow here. We want to get more sleep, especially since it's a wintertime break, which is the best time. That's when your body's naturally calibrated to go slower, sleep more and just generally uh, less energy output. But doing whatever you feel like, um, trying out some new fun stuff like different mobility work, different yoga, Pilates classes, oh, that's great. Just as you ask the question, the answer's right there in your ask. Now, um, a little tidbit uh, that you brought up. I'm wondering at what point these activities might be considered training. Let's look at that maximum aerobic heart rate again. So if you're going on a hike... You called it an easy hike in your question. Easy hike means well below the maximum aerobic heart rate. But what I've discovered is when you're out there on the trails and you're going in the hills, 
it's pretty easy to get up to your max aerobic and even over when you're fooling around doing a silly hike. Uh, uh, I wrote about in the book how in the off-season, we used to get out our mountain bikes and have fun riding in the mud, and it was such a nice break from the triathlon circuit where we were in the drop bars, the aerodynamic position, pounding on the pavement every day to prepare for the competitive season. Uh, But lo and behold, you get out there on some of these uh, winter, casual, fun mountain bike rides, and your heart rate's going uh, into your throat, and you're realizing that here's another anaerobic session. It doesn't feel like it. It's just because there's mud on the trail or, um, you know, the terrain is difficult. But that heart rate is the end-all measurement of whether you're doing a rejuvenating activity or whether you're conducting a training session. So during this off-season period, make sure that break legit where you're hanging out, uh, taking it easy. The workouts can come and go. If you miss one because you have a family gathering instead, you don't stress about it. Don't even stress about it during the season, but especially in the off-season, it's important to have that physical break from the stress of training, especially the anaerobic activities that are highly stressful. Uh, But it's also important to have a mental break from the regimentation and the scheduling and the squeezing of workouts in around your busy lifestyle pattern. So that's the most important thing I think about that off-season is where you just unplug from the obsession with your physical condition and your injury concerns and all these things and your hamstring, whether it's going to be too tight to uh, conduct the track workout three days time, all these things that are running through your brain during the competitive season. We want to just chill and let those uh, fall away and just do your thing in the winter. I would even say, uh, as far as the diet's concerned too, you know, um, give yourself a little bit of a break when you're uh, being devoted and disciplined to regimented dietary patterns or the exclusion of foods that you wish you could eat once in a while. So when you go ahead and indulge, you have permission from the uh, podcast host, but let's do this too. Notice the entire experience and whether it really is improving your life and whether it's just the most blissful thing to have a donut in the morning or to have a slice of cheesecake or whatever it is that you feel like you're missing out on uh, with your commitment to primal style eating and disciplined eating during, let's say, your competitive period. And what I'm going to bet you is that when you've cleaned up your diet, when you've ditched grain sugars and refined vegetable oils uh, and, and notice how your body functions better when you minimize insulin production rather than have this chronically excessive carbohydrate intake, chronically excessive insulin production, the energy level swings, the roller coaster, the overstimulation of the fight or flight response and gluconeogenesis because you're a sugar burner rather than a fat burning beast. When you notice all these benefits and how much better you feel when you're eating cleanly, and then you go ahead and say, well, it's the holidays and I'm going to have some apple pie and some ice cream because it's warm and my and the host of the party made it. Um, see whether it's really worth it or not and whether you really need to do it. And I'm speaking from authentic position here, and I'll admit that, yeah, once in a while, I'll go for certain things. Um, My big one used to be cheesecake. And um, the last, let's say, five times I've indulged in cheesecake, and I'm going to gather that that's probably counting a year and a half to two-year span. So not very often, but each of the last five times, I've noticed something different uh, at the end of the experience, and that is that I have an adverse physical reaction to consuming sugar uh, because I'm highly sensitized to it, because especially uh, having gone through that ketogenic uh, eating period of 140 days, 
where I was, you know, really getting to the highest level of metabolic fitness, um, very highly attuned to the negative effects of processed foods in my body. And so the last five times I ate cheesecake, you know what? Of course, it tasted good doing da- going down, but it was so sweet that, you know, a third of the way through or halfway through, I felt like I'd had enough and maybe I did eat a few more bites, but it was just kind of overboard. It was an overstimulation of uh, the sweet taste buds, and it didn't satisfy me like it did in the old days when I was a sugar hound. So that was interesting. And then the adverse physical consequences afterward, where I felt a little bit of a racing heart and didn't uh, go to sleep naturally and smoothly like I usually do, maybe some bloating in the digestive tract and all those adverse circumstances that uh, we're so used to, they're so commonplace that we don't even think about them. But when I step back and do a big picture evaluation of the experience, I realize that I can probably do without. In fact, I probably like my 90% cacao dark chocolate from Lint. That's one of my favorites. 85% Trader Joe's is pretty awesome too, especially the dark chocolate macadamia nut bark that I'm famous for around the globe. Um, that might even be my preference from anything else on the whole planet that I'd want. And so I might have proclaimed this on a show or I might have said it, you know, just in person to uh, uh, listening, inquiring ears um, that I was never going to eat cheesecake again. It was just like the last five times just didn't do it for me. Interestingly, we'll see if that uh, holds true. I will also say when I was walking the streets in New York City last month and stepped into this place called Magnolia Bakery in uptown, and they had these banana cream pies that were really natural, natural whipped cream on top, and the banana filling was uh, freshly baked right there, and somehow I got a spoonful into my body, and it was heavenly. I mean, it was unbelievable. So I think I might have put away um, two more during my five-day stay in New York, so I was definitely hitting that hard, but it was uh, it was a special occasion, a special treat, and a very well-chosen treat that I enjoyed. Yeah, I felt a little bit of uh, adverse digestive consequences, but all in all, I think especially because it was um, a naturally manufactured product rather than a processed product that you find in the frozen section of a store, the adverse physical consequences were minimal, and jeez, I'm definitely not going to do it uh, every night or once a week or even once a month. And it might be another year go by before I make a choice to indulge in something like that. So I'm not standing here as an ascetic saying that you never need to um, consume any sweet treat ever again in your life. But the more awareness you bring into it and the more you build that foundation of being fat and keto adapted, the more you realize that you don't need the sweets and treats and that they kind of throw you off track and you wake up the next morning looking for more because now you're back on the uh, the carbohydrate dependency path rather than the cleaner path of being fat adapted and uh, getting your indulgences from high fat treats that don't overstimulate that insulin response and put you on that roller coaster. Uh, that wasn't even part of any question, but I'm uh, I'm rolling here. I'm rambling. So you get a little piece of banana cream pie from Magnolia Bakery and a piece of my mind at the same time. Thank you for the original question, which let's go back and look. What was it about? <laughs> I don't even remember. It was something about training. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, let's see what else we have here. Okay, here's my question. If I'm going for a five to seven hour race, the ultimate goal, should I be working toward skiing, cross-country skier, that long in training sessions, and should I keep it aerobic? It sounds like a no-brainer, yes, but I thought I'd at least ask the question. And boy, isn't it nice to be 
a, uh, a participant in the Primal Endurance Online Mastery course because you get these great written answers from Lindsay Taylor, uh, personal, right back to your email. And then we ask them on the show as well. So she put a good answer here. So there's no set general rule, but um, you want to approximate the challenge of your competitive goals in training. So if you're going for that uh, very lengthy cross-country skiing race, you want to put in some uh, long sessions. Definitely aerobic is where you get the best uh, benefits. It's not going to break you down from an overly stressful long-duration workout where you're pushing out the longest workouts that you do and also exceeding your aerobic heart rate. Um, Now, that said, race day is a special day. You don't need to do exactly what you're going to do in the race in training uh, over and over again or even once. So uh, the marathon runners know that um, it's not likely that you're going to get a 26-mile training run at the pace that you intend to run in the marathon because that would be like putting in a marathon race. So even 20-milers and things that are well below the challenge of race day. So you're never going to see those last six miles in training except on race day. And guess what? That's what makes race day special because you dig deep and you harness your reserves and your will and your motivation and the excitement of the crowd and all the special things that get you into that peak performance mindset and peak performance physical capability on race day. But if you were to do it over and over again in training, uh, you're so insecure about your marathon uh, prospects that you're going to do three or four or five 26-mile runs in training um, you're going to be drained and lacking that will and that motivation on the race course because you've depleted it through your frequent workouts. And I know it sounds silly and obvious, but in a lot of cases, especially in the triathlon scene or the low-impact uh, sports where you can get out there on your bike and ride a century ride over and over and over in preparation for your century ride or your uh, Ironman race where you're riding 112 miles on the bike and people just drain their battery power before they get to the starting line due to insecurity or due to a false notion that you need to uh, approximate the challenge of race day over and over uh, exactly or as close as possible in training. Your body's built really well to rise to the occasion and do something that you've never done before on race day if you take care of yourself, if you're healthy, and if you have that tremendous drive and motivation that comes from uh, a healthy, balanced training program. Next question. Due to my schedule, I can't run until early evening or even after 9 p.m. I know this isn't the healthiest time, but it's what I can do. So is it okay for me to skip eating after these later night runs? I usually don't feel hungry, uh, but I end up eating something because I've been told, quote, you need to eat within X minutes after training. This obviously has a negative effect on my weight loss goals. What's your opinion? Can I skip the workout meal? Lindsay Taylor killing this in writing with a nice detailed response and basically contrasting the two schools of thought, which is one, that window of opportunity, that carbohydrate paradigm message where glucose is your main source of fuel for the working muscles. You go do a workout, you deplete your glucose, and then you have a free pass slash obligation to refuel with whatever nearby carbohydrates you can get, best done as soon as possible before the workout because that's when your muscles and your system is most receptive to glycogen reloading. And the story all makes sense and is proven in laboratory scientific uh, arena. However, the story takes place inside a bubble of the carbohydrate dependency eating and exercise patterns. So we have this wonderful new horizons here, uh, Primal Endurance detailing this uh, in the book, 
and talking about the transition from carbohydrate dependency to becoming fat adapted is kind of the centerpiece, the headline. Um, We also have the FASTER study, F-A-S-T-E-R, and the work of the pioneers in low-carbohydrate endurance training and racing. Um, Basically, the... uh, the takeaway message of the FASTER study, you can Google it or search on podcasts or people talking in detail about the study, but it pitted a group of high-carbohydrate-eating elite endurance runners against a low-carbohydrate group of elite endurance runners. Uh, not against, like in a competition, but just measuring their various output in the laboratory with the gas exchange and f- looking at what fuels they're burning and what rate they're burning. And it was discovered that um, the maximum human capability to burn fat during exercise is actually more than twice the previous believed human limit. So when you consume a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, it has a direct positive impact on your endurance performance by allowing you to oxidize more fat per minute than a person who is on a high-carbohydrate diet. What that means is for the question, back to the question is, if you're fat-adapted, you don't need to obsessively refuel after workouts because your body is really good at burning fat during exercise and your body is also really good at replenishing glycogen even without a carbohydrate slam. And it does that through various ways. Um, It can engage in a bit of graceful, delicate, not excessive gluconeogenesis to convert amino acids into glucose or it can just generally function with um, fatty acids taking the place of glycogen uh, in the muscle so that you don't even require, uh, even, even in high-intensity workouts, you don't require uh, a ton of, uh, of glucose. And then as far as your brain, which is the real, uh, the real hound for the dietary glucose, knowing that your brain requires around 150 grams of carbohydrate, glucose, uh, 600 calories per day. That's a huge chunk of your total daily caloric output. And the brain can burn only glucose or the wonderful glucose-like substitute fuel called ketones that are manufactured internally under circumstances of uh, very low dietary carbohydrate. So if you're fat and keto adapted, you can go do a workout. It can be a long-distance aerobic workout. It can be a brief, intense workout. And even a small keto-aligned meal can help you replenish glycogen and recover completely from the workout. This is That last statement was right out of the mouth of Dr. Dom D'Agostino. It's amazing breaking science to realize that this carbohydrate paradigm has uh, something beyond it in outer space where it no longer applies. Of course, if you are not fat and keto adapted and you are not aligned with healthy dietary habits and you're still trying to train and burn a bunch of calories, um, you can't play this game and it will be advised to replenish calories right after every single workout because you're a sugar burner and you're sugar dependent and it's not as much fun overall. Okay, Um, here's the next question. I know from my own math training that simple 45-minute rides can provide stimulus even if I'm already capable of doing so. The sentence, to earn gains, you have to provide a stimulus that outpaces what your body can do right now. This is uh, sending uh, a link and referring to this statement from another author. Uh, Are you able to talk in relation to math how basic aerobic sessions do in fact provide stimulus for your body to adapt, even if they're short and even if they're comfortable? Uh, This logic would imply that once you get used to four to five hour rides, then this no longer provides a stimulus. And hence, uh, to improve, you'll have to go up to seven, eight hour rides. So this is an interesting little question here that's kind of challenging this 
uh, rudimentary notion that no pain, no gain, if you want to uh, quote it that way. Um, so what about doing an easy workout? Does that really contribute to your fitness? Um, this question's been answered for the last 60 years by the performances of the elite endurance athletes in every sport all over the planet, where they put in a lot of training volume at a comfortable pace and are able to better absorb and benefit from the high-intensity workouts that they conduct in a, in a, uh, in a proper manner uh, at the proper times. But you have to have that base, and it's almost more is better when you're feeling comfortable, you can absorb it, and you're maintaining a commitment to aerobic heart rates. So the body gets conditioned by easy 45-minute bike rides, easy 20-minute runs, and putting that time in on your feet, uh, getting the central nervous system to fire those muscles and send the message to uh, the neurons throughout the body, throughout all the um, organs, systems that are required to perform the work. Um, it definitely benefits you, and there's no shortcut. You can't sit here uh, and listen to a podcast or read an article and think that you're, you're going to get better or think that only when you push yourself you're going to get better. Um, and so there's been a lot of this type of messaging out there for many, many years, and a lot of them are boosted or bolstered by laboratory science showing that if you take these college kids who got paid 50 bucks and train them really hard for six weeks, they're going to improve at a greater rate than the college kids that you pay 50 bucks and you have them train comfortably and easily. So the body responds to uh, training stimulation, and if you push yourself hard, you're going to get a fitness adaptation response that's going to be more profound than that simple 45-minute exercise session at a comfortable heart rate. However, they both go hand-in-hand hand because uh, over the long-term picture, longer than six weeks, after you've finished collecting your, your money and you get to go back to class, um, then we have this problem of balancing stress and rest, the return on investment from a high-stress workout, and how to absorb and benefit from those workouts without breaking down and falling apart. Because if you do a hard workout or three hard weeks of training or eight hard weeks because that's what you, the package you bought from your personal trainer, and then you go get an illness, an injury, or mental burnout, um, all that progress that you made where you can lift more weight each week or go a little bit faster or go a little bit longer down the road, all that progress is essentially wiped out when you have a major setback like that, especially a mental setback where you no longer feel like it and you're no longer in the game. So that's my message to say that comfortably paced training works. Um, it feels good. It's part of moving your body and getting uh, a healthy, active lifestyle to counterbalance all the sedentary forces of modern life. We've done entire shows on the importance of regular everyday movement to develop cardiovascular health, which Katie Bowman does a good job distinguishing between cardiovascular fitness. So fitness, you're narrowly uh, suited to perform a specific and narrow function, like pedal your bicycle for 50 miles at a high rate of speed. But cardiovascular health means that all the, uh, all the blood vessels and veins and, and your heart and your arteries are working uh, smoothly throughout the body. And there's been uh, science now showing the active couch potato syndrome that fit athletes can have serious cardiovascular disease risk factors, especially if they overdo it, or overall poor cardiovascular health, including uh, blood values that are adverse in triglycerides or in uh, C-reactive protein and other inflammatory markers, um, showing that their exercise not only um, doesn't help them, it actually hurts them. So these comfortably paced exercise sessions are boosting health 
and they're boosting your ability to absorb and benefit from the high-intensity workouts that you do perform. See how they go hand-in-hand? You envision a pyramid. That's why they call it a base. You have to build the base of the pyramid before you aspire to the top heights of the pyramid. And just for fun, I wanted to read through Lindsay's reply, hitting some of the same points and also some uh, additional excellent points. Um, The one I'll leave you with is uh, the original question where it said, so if I can go four to five hours at a comfortable pace, does that mean, and it doesn't stress me anymore, does that mean I have to bump it up to seven to eight hours? Well, if you bump it up to seven to eight hours, you're still going to get a nice fitness response. So that's a good idea or a good suggestion. But look, here's the other thing. If you're doing that ho-hum 45-minute uh, pedaling session that's a fitness maintenance workout or your, your, your uh, far end is out there to four to five hours, guess what's going to happen over time as you improve your conditioning? You're going to be able to perform those sessions at a faster speed. And that's what improving your aerobic function is all about. And that's why we see the Olympic runners like Galen Rupp, my buddy Christopher Smith saw him running down the street in Portland a few months ago, and he saw this guy just flying along the flying along the road going, wow, that guy looks like he's a pretty fit athlete. And there he is, the Olympic medalist in his neighborhood, um, running at a shockingly high rate of speed, but yet he's actually, quote unquote, jogging. He's doing a steady, comfortable training session, but because of his high fitness level, he's flying down the road at six-minute pace or sub-six-minute pace. That's the concept we want to get into our heads. That is, you get fitter and fitter by building that aerobic base and becoming more efficient at that simple routine 20-minute run at a low-stress heart rate. What's going to happen over time, because you're being good to your body and because you're not overstressing your body, is you're going to get faster and faster. Oh, I love it. That's the cool stuff. Even though it's tough, it's difficult to stick to, you get frustrated, you feel like you're not getting a workout this is where your mindset needs to stay, is that I'm going to get more efficient, and that's going to translate into faster running speeds. I'm a 52-year-old female triathlete. Welcome, 52s, to the show. Yeah, rock. That would be 1965. Good year, huh? I often podium in sprint and Olympic distance races. My diet's good, healthy fats and proteins, no junk food. However, I can't even break into a run with my heart monitor beeping at 128, and that's on a flat track. I usually run 8-minute pace 5Ks, and I want to get faster. I can't wait months to run again as tri-season will be around the corner. Can you please help? Um, so here's such a familiar story. Don't feel bad. You're not alone. <laughs> we have very competitive person, very healthy person, winning uh, events, getting prizes, running 8-minute pace for 5K, and can barely break into a run without that math heart rate beeping. Um, Same for me. When I was an elite professional athlete, winning prize money on the professional circuit, and then finally embracing this concept of aerobic training and giving it a real shot, oh my goodness, I realized that um, I was aerobically deficient because I had to jog really, really slowly to avoid the heart rate beeping, and I uh, had an excess of anaerobic conditioning of high-stress training. It still translates into uh, uh, peak performance on the race course, but it's very shaky, very tenuous. I was struggling from illness, injury, burnout, performance regression, and then simply not reaching my potential, feeling like there was more I could do. And the gateway to doing more and to performing better was to slow down. So this is the essence of what we're talking about here. If you can barely break into a jog 
when you're hitting your maximum aerobic heart rate, that is your training zone until further notice. And the further notice is going to be that pretty soon you can break into a jog, pretty soon you can maintain a comfortable pace. We talk about this in detail in Primal Endurance with these wonderful sidebars about Mike Pig and Mark Allen and myself, where we're starting out with this aerobic conditioning commitment and not very impressive. I remember my first aerobic uh, function heart rate tests were uh, around 745 pace per mile for a couple few miles running around the track. And I steadily over time uh, reduced that pace to six minute pace per mile for five miles. So I ran 30 minutes, uh, five miles in 30 minutes, all without my heart rate beeping or beeping a little, but keeping it at 155, which was my peg number back then. And that took uh, a couple few years to uh, put in this commitment to aerobic conditioning to the extent that I could improve my pace per mile time by a phenomenal minute and 45 seconds per mile. That's a huge improvement. Guess what? How did that translate on the race course? It only maybe improved my pace per mile by, let's say, 10 seconds a mile, going down from 520s off the bike for 10K to 510s. But uh, when you're competing at that level, the difference between a 10-second per mile improvement, even though it's paltry compared to the improvement in aerobic function, it means the difference between seventh place and first place. So it's, you know, it's the essence of um, improving at the elite level. And at the recreational level, if you can't put in um, you know, a, a decent aerobic uh, test and you're so frustrated because you have to jog walk instead of run, what's going to happen is you can expect absolutely dramatic and quick improvement in that pace per mile time. So if you can barely uh, break into a jog and you start beeping, with that level of conditioning and commitment to healthy lifestyle, because you're a racer and you're winning prizes, um, you're going to take that thing from whatever it is now, 14 minutes per mile, and it's going to drop down to 13 really quick, and then it's going to go 12.28, and then it's going to go 11.47, and then it's going to go 11.06. And oh my gosh, if you're slapping off those huge chunks of time on your aerobic function, this will translate directly directly, without having to do any intervals, without having to do any tempo, directly into improved competitive performance. Um, I don't want to belabor this point too much because I talk about it so much and it's written about so eloquently in the book, but this is what Maffetone has been uh, saying with great patience for over 30 years, coming on 40 years, that slowing down helps you go faster. And it's a physiological metabolic fact that you become better at oxidizing fat at any pace at a slow pace, and that translates into better competitive performance. Um, Here's another big question. Uh, You and Maffetone stated that you don't think you have to compromise health in any way to run the best you're capable of. What if you're wanting to train for, say, a 3K or mile on an indoor track? Um, Is there something I'm missing if I, you know, try to maintain my health? Am I going to go slower? I just don't see how training at your aerobic threshold almost exclusively could prepare me for the shock of trying to run a super fast 3K. Similarly, Matt Centrowitz, who did that incredible 1,500-meter performance in the Olympics, could he have still won gold training exclusively at aerobic threshold? Uh, First, the answer is no, he would not have. He would have race his ass off and train like a madman to get to gold medal shape. And then secondly, um, I would prefer to use the term maximum aerobic heart rate rather than aerobic threshold because we get so much confusion in um, the terminology 
and people misusing these terms or misunderstanding or misinterpreting these terms. So we're going to say maximum aerobic heart rate is the point where maximum aerobic benefits occur with minimal anaerobic stimulation. It correlates to maximum fat oxidation per minute, and it correlates to around 180 minus your age in heartbeats per minute. So what's happening with Centrowitz and someone who has a really fast competitive goal is the aerobic training is building the base, and then you throw down some very impressive speed work so that you can reach to these uh, high level of performance goals. And the only way, you want to read about Matt Centrowitz's workouts, probably on the internet somewhere, he did 8 times 400 at 57 to 58 seconds, and then he did it two flat 800 meters with no recovery, and then he ran 5 miles and came back. I mean, these guys train, it's, it's phenomenal, the work output that they have. But the only way that their bodies or anyone's body can handle, let's say, a 100-mile training volume per week with uh, interval workouts here and there and races and traveling is because they have that phenomenal aerobic base whereby running 10 miles at 6 minutes per mile is like a walk in the park, literally no different than a walk in the park for someone of a moderate fitness level. So when you have that incredible base, that's when you can go to the track and throw down a set of eight quarters at a very fast speed and gain that uh, fitness breakthrough without falling apart. Because if we just tried to approximate um, what Matt Centrowitz is doing at his hard workouts, we would last about 2% of the workout, right? Makes sense? Same answer as the last question. Build the base, build the base. Okay, everyone. Thank you for listening. I think I got through more questions than usual, so that's cool. And... We'll talk to you next time. Send your questions to info at primalendurance.fit. Thanks for listening to the Primal Endurance Podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Until next time. Too high, can't come down. It's in the air and it's all around. Oh, do you feel me now? With the taste of your lips, I'm on the rise. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here, and I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.